Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 3, Episode 3, Going the Distance, the History of Remote Education. Thanks to COVID-19, the experience of online remote learning has become universal for K-12 students and teachers, but it was on the rise even before the pandemic hit. Two years ago, more than 130,000 public schools and 13,600 districts across the United States were employing what are called learning management systems, platforms like Google Classroom, Canvas, Blackboard, Schoology. It was projected to be a $38 billion market by the end of the decade, with K-12 schools making up 64% of that market share. And remember, this was all before COVID. If this were a financial advice podcast, I would be telling you to go buy shares in e-learning companies, or maybe chastising you for not doing it sooner. But since this is a podcast about sharing some of the hidden backstory behind public education, instead, I'm going to try and take you through a quick tour of the history, present conditions, and projected future of online remote learning. And what better platform to use than a digital podcast? So get ready for some remote learning of your own, and here we go. Believe it or not, the history of distance education actually predates the history of large-scale in-person public education in the United States. It actually predates the United States as a nation entirely. The year was either 1723 or 1728, different sources list one versus the other, and I can't seem to find a primary source, but at least those secondary sources all agree that it was in Boston. Yes, Boston, represent, always at the forefront, where a teacher named Caleb Phillips placed an ad in the Boston Gazette offering what was the first recorded correspondence course, an educational program to be carried out via an exchange of letters. And mind you, this was 47 years before we even had a U.S. Postal Service. But before long, there were a bunch of these correspondence courses popping up, and some of them were what we even call bi-directional, with students and teachers exchanging work back and forth. And the first of those courses, if you're curious, came in about 1840 invented by English teacher and militant vegetarian Sir Isaac Pittman. Now, if you have any interest in or knowledge of the fun, wild worlds of stenography, you may have heard of Pittman's shorthand, or simply shorthand, those weird dots and dashes that courtroom stenographers and news reporters used to use before audio recorders were invented to take notes super quickly. To teach this method, Pittman would mail out copies of Bible passages, and his paying students would mail back their translations into shorthand for him to assess. Since you can't exactly charge people for using a note-taking method you invented, these courses became Pittman's bread and butter. Except, well, not literally, because remember, the dude was a vegetarian, he didn't eat butter. In fact, he was the vice president of the British Vegetarian Society, which promoted not only vegetarianism, but temperance and the elimination of alcohol. And this organization is still around today. They're a big advocacy group for labeling of GMOs in foods. They even made a movie about 20 years ago, narrated by ex-Beatle Paul McCartney, called Devour the Earth, and wow, is the internet a research rabbit hole. Anyway, distance education programs were all over Europe and the United States by the mid-19th century, and in 1858, the University of London started offering the first full-time distance university degree program. The University of Chicago becomes the first U.S. school to do it in 1892. Remember, this is all way, way before computers or the internet. But as communications technologies advanced, they were applied to distance learning almost immediately. 16-time Nobel Prize-nominated British writer E.M. Forster, author of A Passage to India, also has a much more obscure work, a science fiction short story called The Machine Stops, 
which, in 1909, imagined a future world where humanity is forced to live underground and is utterly reliant upon a giant machine. Everyone just sits in their home and never leaves and communicates all day via remote messaging. Gee, what a good thing that dystopia never came to pass! Ugh. Anyway, what we now call e-learning was definitely a part of Forster's imagined world, with teachers delivering lectures that get transmitted to people all throughout these underground caverns. Well, the real world started to catch up to that vision much more quickly than you might think. Long before Quizlet or Kahoot, University of Ohio psychology professor Sidney Presley in 1920 built an analog teaching machine, which both presented information and automatically assessed student work so a teacher could theoretically program lessons and then send them out to students all over the country. To his credit, Presley was very clear that he saw this device as a teacher's aid, not a replacement, and emphasized how important the process of questioning and discussion was to learning. And he got really upset when people tried to make money off these things in the years to come. Still, such teaching machines were the rarity. All throughout the 20th century, though, a combination of the post office, records, and eventually audio cassettes and videotapes enabled people all around America to learn all sorts of things without ever stepping foot into a classroom or meeting their teacher, or vice versa. Correspondence courses were available in nearly every subject imaginable. E-learning moved into real time in the 1950s, when Houston University held telecast classes for their students for approximately 13 to 15 hours a week. And in 1976, Coastline Community College becomes the first 100% virtual school using a combination of mail and telephone, radio, and videotape exchanges. With the 1980s came email, and the rise of the somewhat infamous University of Phoenix and its e-correspondence degrees starting in 1989. I say infamous because from the beginning and in the intervening 30 years, University of Phoenix Online seems to be in a pretty near constant state of defending itself against lawsuits and paying financial penalties. Just a handful of examples, University of Phoenix Online was fined $6 million by the federal government in 2000 for misrepresenting how many instructional hours its courses entailed, and got accused in 2003 of paying its admissions counselors based on the number of students they enrolled, which is a violation of the Higher Education Act. They paid $67 million in a settlement, plus $11 million in legal fees, without admitting any wrongdoing. The very next year, they paid a $9.8 million fine, again with no admission of wrongdoing for similar actions, and then paid another $3.5 million to the Department of Labor to settle a violation of overtime compensation for their employees. Then in 2009, they had to pay $78.5 million in false claim suits, and in 2015, the U.S. Department of Defense suspended University of Phoenix's ability to recruit on U.S. military bases or receive any federal funding for educating members of the military. And in 2019, the University of Phoenix agreed to pay a settlement of $191 million related to charges that it had recruited students using misleading advertisements. The fact that this company, incredibly, remains not only solvent, but profitable after all this, attests to the ungodly amount of money that one can make as an e-learning provider. And it spread well past degree mills like University of Phoenix, or its now defunct competitor whose name connotes pure professionalism, Jones International University. Soon enough, no less august an institution than MIT was offering free courseware via Open Campus in 2002. By 2018, 98% of public universities and colleges, and a whole bunch of private ones too, were offering some form of online degree program. You also had non-university actors getting in on this picture. I'll highlight one in particular here, Salman Khan. 
both because his work is quite well known and because from the beginning it targeted primarily K-12 students in an era where the primary applications of distance learning were in the university setting. Salman Khan was an American-born entrepreneur of Bengali ethnicity. He was born in Louisiana to a mixed Indian-Bangladeshi family, graduated valedictorian from his high school, and went on to get degrees from MIT and Harvard. Although he achieved some small degree of fame as an editorial cartoonist for his high school newspaper, the skills Khan leveraged in his career were his mathematical ones. Khan worked as a hedge fund analyst for a couple of years, but became interested in education, as the story goes, when he was tutoring his younger cousin over the internet. Word got around, and soon more family members and friends and friends of friends started watching the videos Khan was posting to YouTube. And in 2009, he quit his job to start the YouTube channel Khan Academy with his friend Josh Gender, with a mission to provide free and easy access to education for students all over the world, even and especially those who were either not finding success in their traditional schools, or who were in developing nations and didn't have reliable access to formal schooling at all. In Season 2, Episode 2, we focused on how 19th century educational innovator Francis Parker was only able to accomplish what he did through the aid and largesse of certain influential women in his life. Well, Salman Khan followed in that tradition, with Anne Howland Doerr, wife of venture capitalist John Doerr, bankrolling his project. Although originally a giant repository for teaching videos, in 2012, Khan Academy became an interactive platform, adding a coach feature to connect teachers with students. And by 2020, Khan Academy's videos on YouTube have been viewed over 1.7 billion times. By the early 20-teens, Khan Academy was merely the most popular and successful of a host of similar video repositories and e-learning aids. And while most of these were designed as supplements to traditional education, the writing was on the digital wall for the creation of what we now call learning management systems, or LMSs. The first of these was probably First Class, created by the company SoftArc in Europe in the 1990s, and eventually it crossed the channel to America. The first high school I taught at actually used First Class. The system lets you not only exchange emails with students, but also files to create discussion groups, all sorts of other functions that had been around on the internet for a while by then, but which had never until now been synthesized into one platform for the express purpose of facilitating educational classes. Okay, technically this had already been done in the 1980s at a university in Norway, which used technology of the day to coordinate bulletin boards and class rosters, and ran the whole thing off an HP 3000 mini-computer that was physically connected via cables to 40 terminals across campus. But I'm pretty comfortable saying first class is the origin of internet-based learning management systems, especially those that eventually found their way into K-12 schools. First class, although its main menu was graphical, was otherwise almost exclusively text-based. One of the first major learning management systems that took advantage of visual layouts and could embed video and audio was Moodle, created in 2002 by Martin de Giemis as an exercise to, and I have to quote this, quote, examine the use of open source software to support a social constructionist epistemology of teaching and learning within internet-based communities of reflective inquiry, end quote. Yep, PhD dissertation titles always make books fly off the shelves. I actually also used Moodle for several years, and I have to say, as a scholar of social constructivism, I'm not exactly sure how Moodle is inherently a tool for it, but I guess the idea is that students can contribute content to Moodle, even though that's usually just them turning in their work, but this isn't the hill I'm willing to die on. If you're curious, Moodle is an acronym for Modular Object-Oriented Dynamic Learning Environment, although supposedly in early years the M stood for Martins, named after the author. 
Moodle was soon joined by Course Info and Blackboard and Canvas, all of which got their start in college and university settings, but eventually trickled down to K-12 schools as well. These platforms allowed for quick and easy exchange of materials and ideas between teachers and students, and between students and students, greater organization and record keeping, ease of access for students and families and supervisors, and a means of aggregating data that could be analyzed to help inform future teaching and learning, or that could be sold for profit to advertisers, which sounds like a good time to introduce Google Classroom, which arose in 2014 and is now at over 100 million users, one of the most ubiquitous learning management systems in the world, both because of its user-friendliness and its free price tag. Although remember, if something's free on the internet, you're probably the product. Of course, Google swears in a digital Bible it never shares kids' personal information. This after it was forced to admit it illegally collected children's personal information on, on YouTube without parental consent, mines students' browsing habits and emails, and tracks kids' locations, audio, and search history through various apps and logons, and that's not even counting data breaches, like when Google Takeout accidentally sent private information and videos of untold thousands of users to strangers' accounts. And if you really need even more to keep you awake at night, there's Gaggle. I swear I'm not making this up. You can Google Gaggle to find out more. But basically, Gaggle is Google's social surveillance platform, used by about 1,400 school districts to mine, quote, social media, browsing history, email, homework documents, uploads, chats, pictures, and calendars, end quote, for the purpose of, quote, alerting school officials when students show signs of self-harm, depression, thoughts of suicide, substance abuse, cyberbullying, unhealthy relationships, and credible threats of violence against others, end quote. Yeesh. So yes, e-learning is both a tremendous moneymaker and a potential capitalist totalitarian big brother, but it also has a lot of appeal on other grounds. Students with severe health issues that prevent them from attending physical classes or who are being homeschooled by parents who could really use the extra support can find learning management systems to be a great equalizer. And for any students and teachers, LMSs allow the easy and seamless integration of all sorts of content, text, video, audio, you name it. And both students and teachers can access it at any time, not just during school hours and any place. It's the rare public school district that designs its own LMS. Most, in fact, almost all, contract out to a company that runs one. In 2018, there were over 500 such virtual schools, serving over 300,000 students. Now is probably a good time to mention that, as previous episodes of this podcast have highlighted, the intersection of public money and private educational providers can be somewhat, shall we say, fraught. Several private LMS providers paid with taxpayer dollars to run virtual schools for public school students have been embroiled in various lawsuits and scandals over the years. Just two examples. In Indiana, two virtual school providers inflated their enrollment figures to wrongfully collect nearly $86 million. And in Florida, the private company Florida Virtual Schools, which serves over 200,000 students, and not just in Florida, even here in Massachusetts we have students being subscribed, was investigated for financial malfeasance. The details were sketchy, because a full state-ordered audit was never released to the public, and when the Orlando Sentinel tried to demand more info citing public records laws, the company filed a civil suit against the newspaper and tied them up in costly and prohibitive lit litigation. For reasons unknown, the CEO eventually resigned. But okay, despite some dramatic stories of bad actors, the real question is, how well do virtual schools serve their students? 
Well, for many years, students attending virtual schools were already a subset of kids who had various challenges in traditional school settings, so you have to keep that in mind when you think you're comparing apples to apples, setting virtual school performance up against face-to-face -face schools. But that very big caveat in mind, here are some of what we've got. The National Education Policy Center at the University of Colorado Boulder produced a report in 2018 that demonstrated that that showed that on the average, about 50% of virtual high school students graduate within four years, compared with 84% of high school students nationally. That graduation rate drops even more at virtual schools that are managed by for-profit companies, down to about 48.5%. A second peer-reviewed report from UECB Boulder several years later, in 2019, found that virtual schools reported having about 2.7 times as many students per teacher compared to the national average, and that of the 320 virtual schools with available school performance ratings, about half, 48.5%, were rated acceptable by their state education agencies. A bright spot might be a 2019 study by the American Educational Research Association that found that students tend to receive higher grades in online courses than in their in-person equivalents. However, this, the study couldn't determine whether that's a result of better student performance based on learning, or whether the grading standards were just more lenient in the online courses. Now, again, all of this research is pre-pandemic. We are going to get an enormous amount of data from this year of remote and hybrid learning we're entering, which will doubtless help us understand the impacts, benefits, and drawbacks of e-learning even better. But for now, I'll close the quick summary of some words from University of California, Irvine professor June Ahn, who's also co-editor of, of the journal Educational Researcher. He says that there's a big difference between providing quick, easy, and expansive access to content, as pretty much all learning management systems do, and fostering interaction between teachers and students, between school support staff and families, and of course, between the students themselves especially when the digital divide further disadvantages already disadvantaged students from low-income backgrounds who might have less ready access to technology. As I hope this episode has demonstrated, distance learning is not a new thing. It's as old as, and in many ways older than, in-person, face-to-face public education in this country. But that doesn't mean it's equivalent to, let alone superior to, that face-to-face -face education. There is a very big difference between saying LMSs and e-learning are tools to support education and saying that they are themselves the whole kit and caboodle of education, the teaching, the student interaction, the resources, the environment. In the short term, e-learning companies are going to make an incredible amount of money from the COVID-19 pandemic, and you can bet those companies will be very vocal in the public discussion about how much of this e-learning should continue, even once the disease is defeated. In the long term, Americans are going to have to wrestle with what balance they want between convenience, accessibility, privacy, transparency, quality, and nature of learning. And what answer we arrive at will govern whether e-learning remains a supplementary or optional or crisis-based alternative for education, or whether face-to-face -face learning will be seen as a mere blip on the radar, a momentary alternative to America's long history and experience with distance education. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. 
Otherwise, and the grand tradition of underfunded public schools will be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Great, then you're in for a treat. Today's fun fact about education. In South Korea, students can be in school for up to 16 hours per day. The standard school day lasts from 8 a.m. until 4 p.m., but many students also attend private schools in the evening from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. or later for additional instruction and practice. Bye now.